Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. And Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us out men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses had said to him, to fight with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses lifted up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. And the hands of Moses were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat upon it. And Aaron and Hur upheld his hands on this side one and on that side one. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua laid low Amalek and his people by the mouth of the sword. And Yahweh said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heavens. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Yahweh Nissi. And he said, For hand upon Yahweh's throne, Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, illuminate unto us the paths of righteousness. By your word and spirit we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had the experience that when you drive a particular car, you more readily see the make and model when you're out and about driving? Years ago, I drove an Acura Integra and distinctly remember seeing Integras all over the place, not really having paid much attention to them before. And maybe there's something psychological to this, and I'd imagine it can can apply to other things besides cars. But we can get into routines, so to speak, and see things or observe patterns, etc. Well, there's something of that in our text this morning as we're presented with another example of the foundational primacy of worship in the life of God's people. And if you have some doubts uh, about it at the moment and think I'm just reading that into the text, at least allow me to set the case before you before you render a final verdict. And it could very well be that we run into this principle so often in Scripture because the Holy Spirit wants us to in order to impress the point all the more upon our faith, hearts, thinking, and lives. So where are we at Exodus, uh, in Exodus at the moment? Well, recall last week's uh, text that it was Yahweh who was being tested by Israel. There was no water to be found. Uh, the people were thirsty apparently ready to stone Moses, and so Yahweh gives him instructions of what he's to do with the elders looking on. And in Moses' actions of striking the rock where Yahweh was standing, we see that Yahweh was willing to take the hit in order to provide water for Israel. And immediately our minds jettisoned to Christ upon the cross, from whom, when his side was pierced by the soldier's spear, flowed blood and water, bringing true life, satisfying thirst, providing water even unto eternal life. But let's also consider the structure of chapters 14 through 17, which you can see in the sermon notes on the last page of the liturgy, and how these chapters fit together and correspond, uh, and how the, the defeat of Egypt and the memorial songs in chapters 14 and 15 are now matched by the defeat of Amalek and the memorials here in the last portion of chapter 17. 
Also, let's keep in mind that Israel is still, for the most part, in boot camp. They're learning to march, learning to take orders, to obey, and learning to trust Yahweh. But in this morning's story, the sons of Israel aren't merely going through drills, but actually have to deal with real flesh, uh, flesh and blood enemy. There's this first encounter, this first battle that takes place with Amalek. And something you may have noticed about this text is that it has a certain suddenness about it. Not only in the manner in which we're told in verse 8 that Amalek attacked, but also with the sudden appearance of new characters without any sort of introduction. And we'll consider them when we get to them uh, in the text. But verse 8 sets the stage. And what information are we given? And Amalek came and waged war with Israel in Rephidim. So let's ask a couple of questions. The first is where? Where does this episode take place? In or at Rephidim. And what does Rephidim mean? The plains. Basically, Israel is in the same general location of last week's episode when the water came out of the rock. And we know that plains are flat. The second question is, who? Who is Amalek? Who are these people that are attacking Israel? The best biblical evidence indicates that these are descendants of Esau. According to Genesis 36:12, Amalek was one of Esau's grandsons. But according to verse 9 of that same text, we read that Esau was the father of the Edomites. So Amalek is also associated with the Edomites, and our text this morning is the beginning of the war that makes some significant appearances in Israel's history. In Judges 6 and 7, the story of Gideon, uh, and the story of Gideon, who is it that Gideon goes out to fight? The Midianites and the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul attacks the city of Amalek and defeats the Amalekites. But what doesn't he do? Well, he doesn't kill their king, Agag. And so Yahweh ends up rejecting Saul as king. Before he's king, David defeats the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 30. But then there are some other significant appearances of Amalekites or Edomites that we run into. In the book of Esther, which we studied a few years ago, Haman, the Agagite, descendant from Agag, the Amalekite, wants to completely wipe out the people of Israel, a plot which was marvelously foiled. Also, where uh, there were the Herods in the New Testament, who were Edomians, which is a derivation of Edomites. And what did they do? Well, Herod the Great, uh, king of Judea, tried to murder Jesus, and Herod the Tetrarch, or also known as Herod Antipas, imprisoned John the Baptist and had him beheaded. Then in Acts 12, we read of Herod the king, also known as Herod Agrippa, and he threw Peter in prison, from which Peter was miraculously rescued by an angel. But what does all of this represent? Well, the descendants of Israel, uh, of, of, the, of Jesus' day, at least the leadership in Jerusalem, what, well, the, the descendants of Esau, those who hate the covenant, attacking those who love the covenant, those who are God's people, the descendants of Jacob, even the church. Those are the lines of thinking. That's the patterns we should see in this. We might even be able to say that some of the Israel of Jesus' day, at least the leadership in Jerusalem, became Edomites and Amalekites, given their hatred for Jesus and the war they waged against him. You know, remember, when the Magi show up and ask Herod, where's the king of the Jews that we might worship him? What's the response? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, all of this might be more than you wanted to know about Amalek, but it's, it's good for us to have this greater context in mind. Still more, if we cheat and jump over to Deuteronomy 25 and let Scripture interpret Scripture, we're told 
Remember what Amalek did to you on the ways you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So apparently Amalek attacked the stragglers, those who were weaker among the people of Israel. From other texts, we're told that they rode camels. And in 1 Samuel 15, uh, they're located in Havilah, as far as sure, uh, names we've encountered in past weeks, which is in keeping with Israel's travels as being located in Western Arabia. Extra-biblical sources describe the Amalekites as outlaws in the desert or desert pirates. So perhaps all of this gives us kind of a sense of what these people were like. Another source even contends that the Amalekites went to Egypt and took over for a while and constituted uh, the shepherd kings that are part of Egypt's history. You know, with the power vacuum created by the destruction of Pharaoh and his chariot army at the Red Sea, and Egypt uh, itself having been devastated by plagues, uh, not only the loss of the firstborn, but numerous others, Egypt was ripe for the taking. That's kind of all interesting to think about. So Amalek suddenly attacks, and we're not given any of their backstory in the text, but then who else is immediately introduced in verse 9 without an introduction? Joshua. Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and wage war with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand upon the top of the hill and the staff of God in my hand. Now from other passages, we know that Joshua functions as Moses' deacon, as his assistant, takes over the leading of Israel after Moses' death and leads the people to conquer the promised land. But here he's just given orders and is basically presented as the captain of the army. And what does the name Joshua mean? Yahweh saves which then becomes the name we translate from New Testament Greek into English, Jesus. So Joshua is supposed to select some soldiers, and we'd probably like to know more about that, but aren't given those details. But what are we told? Well, that there's a hill, literally the hill, and Moses is going to stand upon it, which might remind us of Yahweh standing on the rock in the previous section. Now, a hill is not a mountain, but it is an elevated position. What else is mentioned? That Moses will have the staff of God, the rod of God, in his hand. Now, that's familiar to us by now, having seen Moses use that staff in connection to the miracles and plagues in Egypt, in parting the Red Sea, and even striking the rock. But the designation staff of God is explicitly used and at, at, what other, at a significant other time back in earlier chapters in Exodus. Chapter 4 after Yahweh tells Moses to return to Egypt. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your hand. And what does the staff represent? Well, the power and presence of God. And it's in the hand of Moses. And what does the hand represent in Scripture? Power. Now you've got, again, you've got five fingers. Five is the number of power. You can do things with your hand. You can ball it up in a fist and other things. You can hold a hammer and all sorts of things you can do with your hands. It's power. Now, likely you recall this, this theme of hand and power and the power struggle that took place between Yahweh and Pharaoh, even as we ask the question, who's got the power? Well, here in verse 9 is the first of seven uses of hand or hands in this account indicating that it's a key theme to the story. And Moses couches the information in tomorrow. That's when these things will take place. Verse 10, And Joshua did as Moses said to him, and waged war with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur ascended the top of the hill. 
So Joshua takes orders well. He's a good soldier. He picks the troops and goes to war with Amalek. Moses, Aaron, and Hur ascend to the top of the hill. Now, wait a second. Who's Hur? You know, and no, this isn't uh, the beginning of an alternate version of Abbott and Costello's Who's on First. Uh, Hur is a he, and he's clearly designated as an assistant to Moses in some form or fashion. Later in chapter 24, he'll be left in charge with Aaron to settle disputes when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. Yet again, no introduction is given, but Hur comes from the tribe of Judah. And he's the grandfather of Bezalel, whom we read about later in Exodus as one of the two skilled craftsmen who oversee the construction of the tabernacle and its furniture and so forth. So Hur comes from the tribe of Judah. And what comes from Judah? Kings. And what's something kings do? They build, particularly the temple. Uh, David's given the blueprints and Solomon builds it. Still more, Aaron is from the tribe of Levi. And those, of course, the tribe of Levi become the priests in Israel, uh, the men do. Moses is also from Levi. But what office does he hold? Arguably, he's the prophet. So ascending on this hill, you have the offices of prophet, priest, and king represented in these three men. And what do prophets do? Well, they set up covenants and such. They talk worlds into being and, and, and call God's forth. They give the instructions that they've given, uh, been given from God. But they set up covenants and such, and then those are then to be upheld by the priests and kings. And I realize this is all in seed form and maybe you think this is reading back into the text too much, uh, but it's really not because when we understand uh, the types and the intentional ordering of events, and that the ancients thought more along these lines, and that this is how the Bible is written, then it makes all the more sense. Verse 11, And it was when Moses raised his hand, and Israel prevailed. And whenever he rested his hand, Amalek prevailed. Uh, interestingly enough, the word rested is used back in chapter 16 in relation to the manna collection and Sabbath keeping. But the emphasis of the verse is on Moses' hand, singular. Now, or do we think that Moses' hand... Uh, that's kind of empty, uh, probably not. Likely we're to assume the staff of God in that hand, and maybe Moses kind of switches back and forth, uh, but the staff and hand are one and the same. And if you've ever tried to hold your hands up for any length of time, you know that after a while your arms, and especially your shoulders, get tired. When I was attending a summer tennis camp in high school and then later taught at it uh, during my college years, you know, one of the exercises we do for warm-ups were different kinds of arm circles. Uh, and you had, you had big wide ones and then smaller ones. And then we'd also like have holding the arms straight out to the side, and turning your palms up and down and all sorts of things uh, to get the, the shoulders warm. And pretty soon there'd be this competition as to who could hold out their arms the longest. Almost invariably it was within just a few minutes the kids were complaining about their arms hurting or finally succumbing and dropping their arms down and so forth. Well, well, this scene with Moses on the hill is exponentially more difficult and more important than warming up for tennis. Uh, the balance of the battle is literally in his hands. And something that the text is certainly portraying is that without Moses' help, without divine assistance, Joshua and his troops aren't able to defeat the Amalekites. Again, we're not given any real details about the battle. You know, were the Amalekites riding camels? What kind of weapons did they have? How many of them were there? How many troops did Joshua take for the battle? And so on. 
None of that is given. Rather, what takes place upon the hill is given the focus. It's portrayed as more essential than what's taking place on the field of battle. And that brings us to verse 12, which really is the crux of the story and the center of the text. And the hands of Moses were heavy, and they took a stone and set it under him, and he sat upon it. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands, well, on, on this side one on, and on that side one. And so it was his hands being supported unto the going down of the sun. Now, there's a proposed uh, chiastic structure for this morning's text in the notes as well. It probably needs some more refining, but... Um, seems to be a fair representation of the corresponding themes to be found. But here in verse 12, the hands of Moses are the focus. They're even specifically mentioned three times. And we're told uh, that Moses' hands were heavy. You know, he, he can't hold them up any longer. And so what do Aaron and Hur do? Well, they set a stone underneath him for a seat. The word for stone in Hebrew is uh, eben. Uh, and in 1 Samuel 7, when the ark is returned to Israel and Samuel calls Israel back to faithfulness to Yahweh, he takes up a stone and calls it what? What's the name of it? Ebenezer, or Ebenezer, stone of help. In Genesis, we find the patriarchs making use of stones, especially Jacob, for pillars or altars. And what's an altar? A mini mountain. And what do you do on mountains, usually in the Bible or in elevated places? Well, that's where worship takes place. So Moses sits down on the stone, and then you have Aaron and Hur holding one of his hands up, which are holding the staff of God. And it may very well be that we're to kind of to picture the staff as, as the highest point, and then Moses with Aaron uh, and Hur on each side, and then the stone underneath, all on top of the hill. And this being the case, then there's this enthronement imagery that we should probably see here. You know, God is lifted up. His power is recognized, and it's the key to the victory. As one theologian observes, when God's enthronement is recognized and supported by the power of men, then victory comes. When God's enthronement is not supported by men and their prayers and their powers, then there is no victory. So, again, God's staff represents his power and presence, and it's lifted up. Moses serves as the mediator. What do Aaron and her represent? The church and the state. Maybe that's not what you were expecting. But Aaron is of the priestly line of Levi, and her is of the kingly line of Judah. Jesus is the mediator. Where is he? Seated in heaven in rule over the world. And although his hands never grow tired, yet the church and the state are called to uplift him to support him. Now, maybe you think, well, sure, I can agree that the church is supposed to lift up Christ, but the state as well. Well, absolutely, and that's really all part of Paul's point in Romans 13, that those in authority are God's servants for your good, and they are to be a terror to bad conduct. What do Paul's statements assume? That there's a standard that defines good and bad, namely God's Word. A bit more on this later, but hopefully it gets the wheels turning in your brains a little bit, and you can see the foundation for all these things all the way back here in Exodus 17. Of course, what happens in Israel's history when the priests or kings or both go bad? Israel suffers defeat. Well, how does the verse end? With the mention of sunset. What does that indicate? That the battle lasted all day. That it took place in the day, to state the obvious. But this also portrays that this is a day of, of Yahweh. It's a day of the Lord or a Lord's day. Now, we automatically equate Lord's Day with Sunday or the Sabbath, and that's fine. But it's another way of saying Day of the Lord. 
which brings what connotations to mind? Well, God's coming in judgment, which we more readily associate with one of the prophets or even Jesus in teaching the Gospels or perhaps one of the apostles in the New Testament talking about the day of the Lord. But it can also refer to God's bringing deliverance for his people, and that's certainly what we see here as he delivers Israel and brings judgment in, uh, upon Amalek. But of course, these these themes still carry over into our understanding of the Lord's day and even the worship in which we're engaged in right now. See, God comes and inspects us and, and we deal with our sin and he sets us straight by his word and he feeds us at his table. But there's a measure of soberness that also attends to worship. And it's, and it's also part of why Paul exhorts the Corinthians to rightly discern the body, the church, those who are fellow believers and not be given over to divisions. Now, the Lord came and inspected them, and Paul says some of them were weak and sick and had even, fall asleep, had even fallen asleep, that some had even died on account of their conduct, or rather their misconduct, in regards to table fellowship. But when we are judged, Paul writes, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. And I know we've examined uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34 on a few other occasions and have sought to dispel the, the usual reading of it that leads to morbid introspectiveness at the table and keeping baptized children from partaking, um, which is um, arguably to violate the very point uh, that Paul's making about discerning the body. But there's still a measure of warning here that we need to remember. Well, back to our text in verse 13. And Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the mouth of the sword. Now, based on how this is worded, it certainly appears that Amalek, the grandson of Esau, was present and that he along with the, and the people with him were, were defeated. Now, the word rendered overwhelmed in most English translation is only used three times in the Old Testament. It's a word that can mean lay low or weaken, and in this context probably conveys that Joshua inflicted heavy casualties. English translations also render the last part of the verse, edge of the sword, uh, which is certainly the implication. The mouth of the sword conveys a certain imagery as well. You know, the sword is swallowing, consuming, or devouring. And perhaps we're even to connect uh, this with the imagery of Jesus, the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, where we read, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. But again, the text is clear to connect the defeat of Amalek with the actions of Moses, Aaron, and Hur upon the hill. That Joshua has success in verse 13 because of what we're told in verse 12. And then what do we read in the final three verses? Verse 14. And Yahweh said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and set it in the ears of Joshua, that I will surely wipe out the remembrance of Amalek from under the heavens. Now notice that this is to be recorded in a book and set in the ears of Joshua. So there is to be a writing and speaking, a reading and a reciting. And the book of Exodus itself may very well be the book in which it was recorded, but this word is also to be heard, particularly by Joshua. And that word is the complete blotting out of Amalek as a people, which, as far as we know, took place. And the memorialization that takes place here corresponds back to the memorial song after the defeat of Pharaoh and Egypt at the Red Sea. You know, when, when Yahweh defeats enemies, that's worth singing about. That's worth remembering. And the character of Yahweh is displayed in this and then should embolden Joshua in the future as he leads Israel against other enemies. And then finally, verses 15 through 16. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Yahweh my banner. And he said, For a hand upon the seat of Yah, 
war by Yahweh with Amalek from generation to generation. So Moses builds an altar, and we know that, again, altars are many mountains, locations for worship, even as we often read in Genesis, particularly with Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses gives this particular altar a name, Yahweh my banner, Yahweh my ensign, Yahweh my standard. Well, what kind of imagery do a banner, ensign, or standard convey? Well, practically it served as a sign to the troops or even the enemy, identifying the army, symbolizing the nation, or even serving as a rallying point for the soldiers, if need be. And the text leads us to associate the staff with the banner. A banner, you know, hangs down. It's a sideways flag, if you will. If you place a staff horizontally, you know, then you could hang a banner from it, couldn't you? So think of it this way. The staff, which represented Yahweh's presence and power, for all intents and purposes, served that function during the battle. And Moses is declaring that through the name, he's, he's declaring that through the name that he gives to the altar, Yahweh, my banner. Now, verse 16 is a bit puzzling uh, because we rightly wonder what does it mean to have a hand upon the throne or seat of Yah, Yah being short for Yahweh. Well, a hand upon the throne or seat seems to indicate support. And so the imagery is a hand, a source of power, upholds Yahweh's rule, supports Yahweh's rule. And maybe this seems to convey that Yahweh's weak somehow um, and is relying upon us in some way, but that, that's not the picture. That's not what we should hear when we read that. Rather, when there's recognition of Yahweh, of His position, and His people's dependence upon Him, when our hands are upraised, He makes war. And fundamental to this support of Yahweh's throne is right and true worship. See, it starts there, and then you get more people rightly worshiping God, and you lift up God, and you lift up the mediator, and you make Him more visible, bearing witness to His rule and reign. Now, certainly the implication of this directly correlates to our lifting up of Christ, of our offering upright worship, which involves what? Well, the lifting up of our hands in praise and petition. And what's the result of the hands supporting the throne in verse 16? Yahweh's perpetual war with Amalek. Yet again, the theme of worship and warfare going together. And when we come to worship, we're engaging in warfare. And our praise and uh, prayers and praises incite God to act, act on behalf of His people, including dealing with our enemies. And clearly, it's the church's job to do this. But back to the point we established earlier that the state also has a role to play in this. How so? Well, by keeping the peace, by rightly administering the law, and keeping evildoers at bay, rightly punishing them, etc. You know, what does that do? Well, it creates an environment and society in which God's people can freely and peacefully worship. Paul's instruction to Timothy about conduct and worship in the church in the second chapter of his first letter bears this out. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Don't miss the that that's there. You know, our prayers for the civil magistrate are for this purpose, that we might be able to live the kind of life Paul describes. Peaceful, quiet, pursuing godliness, etc. Um, you know, the gospel, we're all to be like hobbits. That's, that's the point, right? But then a few verses later, what does Paul say? I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands. Well, that's a posture for prayer. And holy hands are hands that are set apart, that have integrity, and so forth. David, in Psalm 24, 
Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, that's, that's ultimately true of Jesus. When you read those verses, you should immediately think of Jesus. But as those who are in Christ, we also ascend with clean hands and pure hearts, and we lift up those hands in prayer with the expectation that God will use them for His purposes on the earth. And God invites, He invites our participation. Really, He commands it. And so we pray in obedience to Jesus, who is our mediator, and we exalt and uphold His kingship his rule and reign over all things, and petition that he act accordingly. We pray back to him his promises, his own word. And ultimately, the state, the civil magistrate, should be uh, a help to that and not a hindrance. You know, if we think about some of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world where the church is persecuted, where they can't freely meet without the threat of violence, or even from interference from the state itself, such as in China... You know, then we should certainly be interceding for them and praying that the Lord would confound the schemes of the wicked, that uh, the communist regimes would collapse in order that uh, the church in China would be able to live quiet and peaceful lives. But let's also, uh, as kind of a, a final point, observe the various gifts that are demonstrated in the text. You know, Moses has his job, and Aaron, her, theirs, and Joshua, another. They don't all do the same thing. And such is the case in the life of the body, of the church. That we have different gifts for different purposes and that we are to use and pursue those gifts accordingly. And in recognizing the primacy of worship, that doesn't mean that that's all we do. We don't stay here, but we go out into the world. We're sent, we're commissioned in order that we might use our gifts for the purposes of Christ's kingdom, bearing His name in all that we do. But we don't go relying solely upon our own strength or cleverness or thinking that if we, always just, if we just elect the right president or if this piece of legislation would just get passed, then all will be well. No, those things can be pursued, may even contribute to our living, quiet, and peaceful lives. But, but we must go forth in faith, relying upon divine assistance that the Holy Spirit will give us success, that our prayers and praises here come first and will be used by our Savior and King. And surely we join with David in Psalm 20 in declaring, May we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And so let us come to our intercessory prayers for the church and world this day and every Lord's Day with this expectation and trust lifting up holy hands to Christ, our mediator, upon the throne of grace. And let us behold the memorials that are set before us at his table, and the signs of the bread and the wine, the banners of his power and presence in our midst, that we might be further emboldened and strengthened for the battle to which all of us are called, and for which the ultimate victory has been secured in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for the marvelous way in which it is written. We ask that you would impress it all the more upon our hearts and lives that we may bear fruit to your honor and glory for the furthering of your kingdom to the ends of the earth. Indeed, uh, that the knowledge of you might be like the waters that cover the sea. We pray that you would grant us renewed faithfulness in 
in our various callings in the week to come. And may we continue to rejoice in this calling and who you would have us to be. May we honor and glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.